0: So, we'll get into this week. As I mentioned, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 is where we're going to start. And this scripture was interesting uh, and almost like slightly annoying for me for a little while. <laughs> I'll explain why. It's because when you think of, man, what's the will of God for my life? What's the What does God want me to do? And... Typically, we try to come up with these big, grand exploits and accomplishments. We want it to be big. And I always found it interesting that he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And people always ask the question, what's the will of God for my life? And he states it. There's a couple different examples where he uses different wording, uh, and he gives a few different examples, but in this case, he It's very clear that us continually rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks is an essential part of what enables us to be walking in the life that God has intended for us. So what we're going to talk about today is a few different examples in the Old and New Testament of where people either thanked God, rejoiced, or praised Him, the effect that it had on their life and their circumstances, We're going to look at when the Bible says specifically to focus on joying and giving thanks, and then we're going to look at examples of what it actually looks like practically when you have joy, what's the practice of your life when you have joy, and then the personal benefits you're going to see of having joy and thanksgiving in your life. Now, interestingly enough, when I was preparing this and praying about it, I always... Uh, I knew that part of the reason I was supposed to do this and go on this topic was because of the season that we're in, specifically regarding Thanksgiving coming up this month. And I have always really, really disliked preaching on things that are connected to holidays. <laughs> I, just, I just always had a problem with that. Like, The last thing I wanted to preach on on Easter Sunday was the resurrection, <laughs> interestingly enough, <laughs> and the birth of Jesus on Christmas. I always had a hard time with that. But then this morning when I was preparing for this, I went, okay, Lord, like, There's got to be a reason that this is on my heart and this is what you're instructing me to do. And I realized that in the Old Testament, one of the reasons that God had them have feast days and celebrations and set up memorials is because people can be forgetful. Amen. (laughs) And sometimes you got to have days or weeks or memorials set up to help you remember what you should be thinking about. And so I just realized, all right, Lord, I'm going to be thankful for Thanksgiving, ironically. (laughs) Because if anything, even though it's not necessarily like a, you know, it wasn't put in place because of a biblical instruction, at least it serves as a reminder for us to be thankful. And it was something that was a good reminder for me. And so I figured that it would be a good thing, good thing to teach on. So that's what we're going to get in, get into today. All right. First of all, I just want to clarify about 1 Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 5 verses 16 through 18, and he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. If you start with the prayer without ceasing, in the Greek that means without intermission, which essentially essentially means that there is no time in your life where it is not time to pray. There's no break time, like if you go to, uh, you know, the theater and you watch several movies and they have an intermission, or you go to some kind of... Uh, you know, Broadway show, they usually have an intermission where they say, now it's time to stop, take a break from what you're doing, and then you come back. But prayer prayer without ceasing essentially means there is no time when it's prayer time, and then it's not prayer time, and then it's prayer time again. It is always prayer time. That's the point. Now, when he says pray without ceasing, this doesn't literally mean you have to walk around with your eyes closed and praying out loud in English or tongues, because otherwise that will cause you Uh, a lot of problems in terms of living life practically and effectively. So that's not what he's talking about. Praying without ceasing can include what you meditate on. Just like Dave mentioned his recap, meditating on the word day and night keeps you mindful of God and you have to be thinking about God in order to think to pray. So taking time to study. And as Dave mentioned his recap, to get you to the point where you can be focused on the word Over the course of a day puts you in the position to be able to pray more effectively throughout that day. So taking time in the word in the morning is really, really effective for helping you to pray the rest of the day because you have something that you started your day with. And if you want to start your day with some prayer as well and have that focused prayer time, it sets up the rest of the day to make this easier. Uh, So you have that that meditating on the word day and night. You also have the gift of tongues. Anytime you're speaking in tongues, you don't have to use your brain to do it. Uh, it does not require engaging your understanding, is what 1 Corinthians 14 says. So if you're distracted with something that does not allow you to pray in English, then you can pray in tongues. Yes? There's
1: actually the part of the brain that prays in
0: A certain part of your brain physically you're about? Interesting. Yep. Yeah, like yeah, a sci- oh, it's scientifically. Yeah, yeah, they've
1: done tests to see what part of the brain's activated when you pray in the Spirit. And that part of the brain doesn't have any other function.
0: Interesting. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, so
1: yeah, I could be reading here and praying in the Spirit at the same
0: time. Sure. Yep. All kinds of Another great thing. Yeah, you can read and pray in tongues at the same time too. Yeah. Um Yeah, so prayer in tongues is a, is a great opportunity in terms of uh, if you're distracted with something else. And then thirdly the Bible does not say that it has to be out loud. So for instance, if you take Romans chapter 8, verse 26, it says that when you don't know how to pray for as you ought, that the Spirit makes intercessions for you in groanings that cannot be uttered. That verse isn't talking about tongues in context. That verse, groanings that can't be uttered, literally means the sighing or breathing that you express when you don't know what to say. And A lot of us have done this even just naturally in conversation where you're trying to put something to words and you just go, like that moment, that's what that means in Greek. So literally it's saying when you don't know what to say in English, but your mind and your heart is there and you just sigh, that to the Holy Spirit is also classified as prayer. So, right, tears, yep, that's another part of that groaning and sighing. And so, and then you also have praying under your breath, but just simply keep it simple and remembering that if you don't know what to pray or don't have the time or opportunity or ability to pray out loud or in English or in tongues, then even just the engagement of your mind and heart and meditating on God and your petitions and your worship and letting it come out, even in your breathing, is an important part of prayer. Uh, So just keep these things in mind. Praying without ceasing is about being, or about participating in Those three ways that you can pray. Rejoicing always. This one is especially practical because it essentially means that God's intention for us is that we're always in a state of joy. But if you take Philippians 4 verse 4, Paul says rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And that is written as a command, which means rejoicing is a decision that you make. It's not a feeling. Happiness is something that you feel. Joy is something that begins as a decision. And so what we're going to get into next, before we talk about Thanksgiving, or uh, giving thanks and everything, is places in the Bible where people made a decision to rejoice when they really did not feel like it, and the effect that it had on their life and their situation. Now, I can assure you guys that the more you make a conscious decision to rejoice, the easier it will be to feel joy, Over the course of just simply the rest of your life, you'll find that many things begin as a discipline and then eventually they turn into something that is natural to you. So first example that we're going to look at is in 2 Chronicles 20. This is one of my favorite Old Testament battle stories. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but I would definitely recommend you guys do so on your own time if you want to get the whole context. I'll just give you a summary. There were three kings, three nations, three armies that all gathered together to fight against Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. Jehoshaphat was the king at the time. He was afraid because this army vastly outnumbers them. He gathers all the people of Israel and all the elders and they gather before the Lord and they cry out to God for help. Now, in this particular moment, they are in a state of distress because they don't know what to do. And even though it's good that they're praying, they're praying out of a state of, and when you read the context, it's out of a state of like out of their distress and out of what appears to be a hopelessness. And there's not a lot of hope or assurance in what they're praying. They don't have a lot of confidence in what God is going to do. So then what ends up happening, well, this is where we'll jump in here. Verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 20. They're all standing before the Lord. Verse 14 says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, All you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korathites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come up against Judah and they were defeated for the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. Okay. To sum it up, God says, don't be afraid. You won't even have to fight. What God didn't tell them to do was to set up a worship team, if you will, at the front of the army. <laughs> I like that you got a kick out of that. <laughs> That's funny. Um, God didn't ask them to do that. They Jehoshaphat made that choice. So they go out to the battlefield. The army is there. Everyone's there. But they specifically take a group of people, Levites, and say, you guys stand at the front of anyone and Let's praise God together. So they're making a decision to express joyfully worship to God. And it says when they began to sing, that's when God set these ambushes in place and then the enemy army destroyed each other. Now, a very similar New Testament example, we don't have to turn there, is in Acts 16. Paul and Silas cast a demon out of a girl who was through being demon-possessed, formerly a fortune teller. The citizens of that town were very angry with Paul and Silas because they did that, because they all lost their livelihood as a result of this girl being delivered. So they take them to the the magistrates, accuse them, beat them with rods, and scourge them, and then throw them in prison. Now, I don't know if you've ever been beaten with rods and scourged. One without the other is bad enough, (laughs) but they did both. Now, They could not, I mean, these are stone prisons, okay? They're probably really gross, moldy rats, you know, all of the above. And you can't really lean up against the walls because they just, they have fresh scourging wounds, okay? And typically, they would tear their clothes off and everything too. So you you basically have to stand, maybe sit. You can hardly move simply because of all the wounds. This would be the last time and place where you'd expect to be wanting to praise God, as you can imagine. But it says what happened is Paul and Silas, in the middle of the night, probably because they couldn't fall asleep (laughs) because of having just gotten scourged, says they began to sing hymns to God and pray. And it says all the prisoners were listening to them. Then there's an earthquake. The whole prison shakes. Everyone's chains fall off and all the doors to the prison swing open. Not just for them, but everyone in the whole prison. And we don't, you know... There's probably some pretty bad guys in this prison, right? God breaks off everyone's chains, opens all the prison doors, and the prison guard drew his sword, and he was going to kill himself because he knew if they find out that I was here when all the prisoners escaped, they're going to kill me anyway. So that's why he was going to try to kill himself. Paul and Silas stop him. And this uh, guard, it just says, falls before Paul and Silas, and he just cries out and says, What must I do to be saved? And all he heard was Paul and Silas singing. He knew that they represented Jesus, and he knew that they were singing, and that's what got him saved. That's what introduced him to the gospel. Really, really cool example. Both of these cases, you have a hardship, something very difficult that's happening. First example is they have an army that vastly outnumbers them that has the potential to wipe Judah off the face of the earth. Second is an example where Paul and Silas are beaten and scourged and are being kept in a prison. In both cases, what caused their deliverance was to make a choice to praise God and rejoice when they really didn't feel like it. And not only did it lift their spirits, because that's one of the effects that rejoicing has on you when you make a decision to do it, it does cause you to increase in joy yourself, but it also caused this deliverance that in both cases they experienced. There's a proverb, I don't remember the exact reference one moment. Uh, That says that the light of your countenance brings joy to your heart, which literally speaking simply means that when you make a choice to smile, when you don't feel like it, that that actually helps bring joy to your heart. So you might not feel joy, but making a decision to rejoice helps you to have joy, period. So you apply that principle, you make a decision to rejoice and to praise God And as that joy increases, so does your faith. We're going to look at examples that talks about that. And when faith increases, it results in all kinds of miracles and breakthroughs. And that's what you see happening in these two examples. So what was your comment, Lisa?
1: So maybe I'm missing something here. Or maybe it's implicit that they didn't feel like doing it because of the situation they were in. Sure.
0: So I'm wondering if it's more like, you know, this is just who we are regardless of how we feel or the situation is. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just another way of putting it, you know, that rejoicing, just like Paul is teaching, should be something that we do because it's who we are in Christ. And how your flesh is feeling is not always going to be in agreement. And that's the whole idea. But that's why the Bible says, uh, Jesus in John 4 said, the Father's looking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Worshiping in and out of your spirit means you're doing it simply because it's who you are in spirit and your flesh doesn't have to be in agreement. Amen. Okay, so we'll use those two as examples. There's plenty more in the Old and New Testament, and it can be up to you guys to go look through and find those if you want to. Now, if we look at specific examples in the New, in the New Testament that tell us when to rejoice and why it's important uh Let's start with Ephesians 5, verse 20, and then Colossians 3, verse 17. So we'll go to Ephesians first. Ephesians 5, verse 20. We'll actually start in verse 18 of Ephesians 5. That's where the sentence starts. Ephesians 5, verse 18, if we could start there, please, says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, if we just pause there, the first context he mentions uh, in which we should be singing and praising God is when we speak to one another. Now, this doesn't mean your life becomes a literal musical, What this means is that I'll use a a practical example of this. When you make a practice of praising God just as a natural expression of who you are, and it is your habit to whether it's singing or humming or walking through life and just thanking God for things, and that's your frame of mind and your posture of heart. Then you have interactions with people. I can guarantee you, if you spend your whole day praising and thanking God with a smile on your face, and then you talk to somebody, I don't care how much they don't like you. You're not going to be able to, on a dime, turn around and get angry at them, insult them, so on and so forth, as though your entire praise to God before that didn't even happen. When you make a practice of singing in your heart, this making melody in your heart to the Lord, it's in your heart you're expressing praise to God. He's saying, bring that into your relationships. And if you begin this practice with your relationship with God, it's going to have an effect on your interactions with people as well. And that's why in James 3, it mentions that. Uh, He says, you can't get bitter and sweet water out of the same spring. And he says, with our mouths, we can bless God and curse men. But he says, these things ought not to be so. Because you can't get bitter and sweet water out of the same spring, which means either your mouth is going to overflow with what's bitter or with what's sweet. It is impossible for your blessing God with your mouth to be authentic if you turn around and curse men in the same moment. Of Of course, yeah. We're going to get better at this. We'll increase in this, grow in this. But the point being is that if you're blessing God, if your praise to God is genuine and truly inherent to who you are, you're also, it's also going to show up in the overflow of what you say in your interactions and relationships with people. And so that's why he's saying, hey, don't just praise God when you're by yourself, bring that posture of heart into how you speak to people. That's the first thing that he mentions there. Then he says, giving thanks always for all things to God, the father, in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Give thanks always. Colossians 3.17, turn there next. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Practically, what this means is, Doing all, or whether word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus means you're doing all as a representative of Jesus. The way that this is commonly misunderstood is that people feel like they have to say in Jesus' name to everything they do and say. And that's not the point. Doing all in the name of the Lord Jesus means you bear his name, you represent him. Therefore, do everything conscious of who you represent. That's the point. Whether it's your saying or your doing, do all as a representative of Jesus. And he says, adding to that, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in both of, these, both of these cases, there's emphasis placed on thanksgiving to God, which is what we'll get into next. And if you keep in mind back in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says to in everything give thanks. Now, I've mentioned this before, but in order to give thanks in everything and always, This implies that there's always a reason and always something to be thankful for, no matter the situation that you are in. And so that's a point that should be emphasized. Now, we have to start with the fact that thankfulness is intended to be continual. And if you want to think of things you can be thankful for, it is really about the small things before it's the big things. One thing that has become a regular practice in my life, and I actually started doing this because there was another... uh, minister I was listening to, this was a few, few years back, and it, I thought it was a great idea, so when we would go, uh, now when we go grocery shopping, and I I always remember doing this when I was a kid, uh, you guys can let me know if you can relate, where you try to get as many bags out of the car as you can, and bring them in into the house, try to get it in one trip, right, that was the challenge, and I wasn't really thinking about it as a kid, other than the fact that I just thought it was kind of fun, but today, when We, you know, take grocery bags out of the car and I can put, you know, several bags on each of my fingers and then bring it into the house. I just realized that, man, thank you, God, that I have five fingers on each hand. The fact that I can do this, you know, that's just a tiny example of how something that you might do every day that you wouldn't even think of is a reason to be thankful. And you can be in some of the most difficult or trying situations of your life. And you can be thankful that you have five fingers on each hand. You can thankfully have five toes in each foot, you know, so it's just important that before you're going to think of the bigger things to be thankful for, it's going to start with the smaller things. Are you conscious of the mercy and the grace and the love of God that's being being shown to you in the habits of your daily life, the practices of your daily life that maybe you weren't even typically conscious of? That's where it starts. And you have to start with those things in order to be in order to be overall a thankful person. Just like in 1 John, it says, how can you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? You can apply that same principle to thankfulness or joy. In other words, how can you have gratitude and joy in a a God in Christ that you cannot see when you can't have joy and thankfulness, gratitude in the things that you can see? Like the fact that you have five fingers on each hand, for instance, that's something you can see. It's something tangible, It's something right in front of you all the time, every day. And if you can't find joy in those little things, you're going to have a really, really hard time finding joy in Christ because you can't see Christ right now. We will one day. So if you want to become a thankful person, it starts with the little things. That's the point. So all of us, all of you guys can think of at least one thing, but I can guarantee you there's probably hundreds if you really take your time. So start there. And that's how you can find it possible to give thanks everywhere and all the time. You'll have a hard time being thankful everywhere and all the time if you're trying to just think of bigger things, grander things. But if you're being thankful for little things, there's always and everywhere little things to be thankful for. And that's the point. Amen? And
1: sometimes we need our brothers and sisters to remind us of those things because we've fallen in the pit again.
0: Absolutely. That's why we have each other. One of the reasons. Yep. That's why it says speak to one another in Psalms and hymns too, right? Talk to each other in a way that's thankful. Okay, so next one's going to be Ephesians 5, earlier in the chapter, in verses 3 through 4. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 4. This is a really, really good piece of advice we're about to read here when you're going through tough times. It gives you something everyone can apply. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 4. It says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Foolish talking, basically in its most basic definition, means just speaking of meaningless things. Coarse jesting means being facetious. It's talking about treating serious matters with uh, inappropriately or with an inappropriate sense of humor. What was that? What <laughs> Some things are just not appropriate to laugh at. You know what I mean? It can be hard sometimes, I understand. Yeah, and
1: but, I think that there's a huge uh, connotation, a sexual connotation, too, if
0: you're yes. seeing jokes
1: or this or that are off color. We can say it's off color. We
0: sure. shouldn't be laughing at those things. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and you use you know your conviction, use your discernment. Usually, most people are going to know when it's just not right to laugh or joke about something. You know. Um, But here's the point that we're focusing on. He says, these things aren't fitting for saints. You shouldn't be involved in foolish talking and coarse jesting. But then he says, rather. In other words, what do you replace it with? Giving of thanks, right? Now, all of us have seen this before, that when you are going through something hard, many people, whether they'll say it's because of their personality or how they were raised or their habits, sometimes when you're going through something hard, you can try to soften the blow by making humor out of it. And you make jokes about something and try to laugh about it. Sometimes it's a way that people mask or suppress a lot of pain in their life, right? And it's just a cover-up, a sarcasm, right? And so Paul is saying, "Hey, rather than trying to just make it through life by joking around, give thanks instead. That's the solution." on. I would, yeah, take the microphone, please.
1: Um, I, I think one thing that I'm I'm wondering about is um, where it talks about um, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. Yes. Can yep. you still cheer them up when, you know, can you do something like that when they are having a serious situation in that ma- manner?
0: What I will say to that point is essentially that any way in which you can encourage a person to find things to be thankful for and let that be a part of what cheers them will be beneficial as a medicine for their healing, simply put. But yes, as Lisa just mentioned, you do have to use discernment. Sometimes there's just certain things that are inappropriate to say to a person depending on what they're going through. Overall, I'll just keep it at that for now, that having a cheerful countenance and a cheerful heart and engaging yourself in that through an intentional choice of thanksgiving is uh, very advantageous, advantageous for your healing, um, in any situation. So, yes, absolutely. Maybe Keep that in mind. A <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, if you focus on the fact that he says replace being foolish in speaking or facetious with giving of thanks, that at least implies that sometimes the best way to bring relief to a situation is not with comedy, it's with thanksgiving. So keep that in mind. If you want to help somebody, help yourself, rather than just joking about things, be thankful for it. It's better to smile because of gratitude than it is because of a joke over something that really shouldn't be joked about, right? Put a smile on your face and somebody else's with gratitude. That's going to be way, way, way more effective, and that's what the Bible commands us to do. Okay, last one we'll look at is in First Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5. First Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5. He's talking about doctrines of demons, and he says, One of them is forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, which, this is God's alternative, He created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So this is one place where we're told that it is good and essential to be thankful for your food and your drink and to offer thanksgiving for it. Jesus did this when he broke bread, when he fed the 5,000. He always gave thanks for the food. This doesn't mean you have to have this long road to religious prayer. That just simply means that if you are giving thanks for your food, you're fulfilling this 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 commandment and this requirement. Give thanks for what you have to, to eat and drink. One practical example of how effective this can be in trying times or situations is with Paul in Acts 27. We're not going to turn there. But actually, no, I will turn there because... I would rather give you guys more knowledge of the context. A lot of times we don't think about how effective it might be to give thanks for your food. But we're going to read about a situation where I believe it it seems it actually changed the course of the situation. That was very difficult just because somebody thanked God for a meal and, and showed the glory of God in doing so. So this is Acts 27, and we're going to start... Verse 27, Acts 27, verse 27, it says, now when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land and they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. When they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. I'll pause just as context. It's been dark. They've been in the middle of a storm for a long time. Paul warned the entire crew of the ship not to sail. He was on the ship as a prisoner on his way to Rome to appeal to Caesar. He warned everyone not to go, but they went anyway. Now, Paul is caught in the middle of a situation that was not his fault. He shouldn't even be there because it actually says that an angel warned him that there would be a storm. So none of this is his fault. It would be very easy for him to gripe and complain, right? If we were in his shoes. So they're drawing near some land. They take soundings, find out that the water is getting shallower. But it's still dark. They're praying for day to come. So then, verse 30, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So now you've got soldiers that are trying to jump ship because they're so afraid they're going to die. Paul says, don't leave the ship. You'll die if you leave. If you stay on the ship, you're going to survive. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff, which is just a small boat, let it fall off. 33. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. So they've spent 14 days fasting and they've been in a storm for 14 days with no light of day. So it's been dark this whole time. Tough situation. <laughs> Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Paul's not complaining. He's not griping. This is so cool. Look at this. When he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and they took food themselves and in all we were about 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And then it continues on. Basically, the ship gets caught between rocks. The waves start to break it up. They jump overboard and swim to shore. Everyone survives. Everyone survives. We don't know what happened to all these other prisoners, soldiers, centurions that were on the ship, but they were all encouraged because one person, Paul, had sense and gratitude enough to give thanks to God for a single meal that they got to eat after 14 days of fasting and in a storm. Paul was a thankful person. And if you look at his example in Philippians 4, he says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And the only way... You're going to learn to be content in whatever state you are is to begin with being thankful for what you have. Because if you're mindful of what you have and gratitude for it, it puts you in a position to find contentment in any situation that you're in. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And if we have food and raiment with these, we shall be content. He says, it should be plenty for you to become content. Simply with the fact that you have a shirt on your back and some food to eat. And the storm ended. And the storm ended, yes. (laughs) And the storm ended. So if you can begin by being thankful for food and clothing and keep it at that, and you through that thankfulness find contentment, then no matter the circumstance you're in, you will be able to maintain that contentment because it's simply rooted in the gratitude you have for what Christ has given you rather than attaching your gratitude to favorable circumstances. And that's the way most people live. They live based on happiness, which is just that I'm doing good as long as things are going good. But that's not how we ought to live. Yes, Philippians 4, 4, verses 10 through 13. Uh, Why don't we read that just to get the whole. This is the uh, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, taken out of context. (laughs) And uh, if you look at what Paul is actually talking about. It's adds a whole lot deeper meaning to it. So Philippians 4, if you start in verse 10. says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care. But you lacked opportunity, not that I speak in regard to need. Here's what he's saying. You guys were very generous. You blessed me. He's talking about a financial gift that they gave Paul for his ministry. He said... I'm rejoicing in it, but he's saying, I'm not rejoicing about it because I had great need of it, and I simply feel relieved because of a need that I had. He's saying, I'm rejoicing about it for a different reason, and then he states the reason. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Apply this to your life. This essentially means that if you can only rejoice in things or rejoice about life when you have a we'll say need met, then that joy is simply being attached to what you are gratified in. But if you're content in all circumstances, then when people give to you, that rejoicing is not extending from an insecurity, a codependence, a selfish need. Joy, when it's truly joy, is selfless, which means you're not just happy when you're gratified but you're happy, you're joyful, you have joy in everything. So he says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content, which means, second point here, you're not going to wake up in the morning and suddenly be content in everything. It has to be learned. There's work that goes into it. In other words, putting effort into learning to be content in everything is a process that requires work, that requires labor, and it begins with thankfulness. Paul Paul demonstrated how he learned it with his gratitude. So if you can start, just as I referenced earlier, by being thankful for little things and having joy in the blessings that God has given you that most people completely overlook, you make that a habit, you're setting yourself up to be content in all circumstances. Just as Paul said, if you find contentment in having food and raiment, then that contributes to you being content in all circumstances. And for Paul, those circumstances were quite difficult being shipwrecked, scourged, stoned, so on and so forth. Amen? Okay, so then verse 12, he says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. This is interesting. I thought you didn't have to learn how to be hungry. I thought you're just hungry or you're not. Right? Point, there is actually a right and wrong way to be hungry. And there's a right and wrong way to be full. You have to learn how, how what? How to be content when you're hungry. And to have the same contentment when you're full and that contentment never changing. That's something that has to be learned. That's what Paul's talking about. Both to abound and to suffer need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me means that you can be content and have joy no matter what's happening. That's the Christ strengthens you for that. That's what it's talking about. Amen. Okay. Now let's get into more what it looks like to be joyful. How do you know when a person is joyful? How do you know when you're joyful? We know just as I mentioned, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. You can be thankful and content in all circumstances. Every small thing is a reason to be thankful and to smile. You will find yourself being thankful for all things everywhere when you have joy in your life. If you don't, don't have joy, you're going to have a really hard time finding things to be thankful for. So if you want to build more joy in your life, be more thankful. And eventually that joy and thankfulness feed each other. As joy increases, so does gratitude. As gratitude increases, so does joy. So a joyful person is going to have constantly things that they're thanking God for. When you're truly joyful, even hardships alone give you reason to smile and be thankful. James 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Trials are hardships, tests, difficult things that you go through. A joyful person considers hardships a reason to smile and have joy. Because, James 1 says later, the testing of your faith produces perseverance, right? Patience. Then we've talked about this a few weeks ago, that perseverance as it is perfected, perfects your faith, right? So if you know that trials produce patience, patience produces a mature and perfected faith. That is a reason to be happy. You take Paul, or excuse me, Peter and John in Acts chapter five, they were beaten for the first time. In other words, they were truly persecuted for the first time since the beginning or the founding of the faith it says they walked away from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now I've mentioned this to you before this beating with rods was this was not a spanking. Okay? Typically the, I mean these were solid wooden sticks and they would beat you to the point where your bones would get basically a whole bunch of hairline fractures so that you could walk and you could move, but it was extremely painful. That was what the beating with rods was. And typically it was on your legs that they would do that. So this just happened to Peter and John. And they walk out rejoicing. Praising God that they were counted worthy to suffer this way. This is a trial. It's a suffering. Why are they able to rejoice? Because they know that if the world hates us for what we're preaching, then that means we're walking like Jesus. Because Jesus said, if we're like him and they hated him, then they'll hate us. So people hating us means we're doing something right. right? Then this trial, this suffering produces patience, increase in perfected faith. This is another thing that's interesting about persecution. We don't hope for it, but the Bible says that it's granted to us and it's considered a gift. And the reason why is because just as with all other trials, when your faith remains and your joy remains when you suffer persecution, you walk away from it feeling good because you know, man, if I could go through this and God brought me through this and I still have joy, that boosts you. It lifts your spirits because you realize, man, it's like, you know, it comes from God, but you realize, man, my faith is strong. Like you you realize what Christ can bring you through, and that is part of what perfects your faith. It strengthens you, and that's why it's considered a gift. Persecution. What verse, yeah. what verse for what? It just said, it says in the Bible that uh, Oh, that's um, Philippians. Uh, it's chapter 1, verse 29. Yeah, Philippians one twenty-nine. Oh, yeah. So that one is, with these we shall be content. That's First Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8. Yep. Yeah, so even hardships themselves are supposed to be a reason to rejoice because of what it, what it does for your faith and how it strengthens you. That should be a reason to be happy. Yes. Okay. There should be a, there's a button at the bottom. You've got to push, uh, like. On the side, side bottom, that little stub, that's, there you go, yep. Okay, go for it. Okay.
1: So I don't know if this is the same for men and women, since women have more of a tendency to be emotional or femininity is the more feeling side. I think when I first learned this, I learned it wrongly, perhaps, and I began to spiritualize it and thinking this is, this is what I need to do. But what I failed to do is to really acknowledge, like Earl taught us, to what, what's really going on inside. And it's when I can really, for me, when I can acknowledge what's really going on inside, then I can get over to the gratefulness. But to just kind of put on a front while I'm going through stuff, has been really kind of like a shipwreck for me. But I've learned, I can be content in that, but I need to acknowledge what's really going on inside of me. Mm -hmm. And whether there may be other triggers inside, like the gold getting heated up to Mm -hmm. get the impurities off, like maybe that bitterness is already inside of me and and that needs to come up and out. So acknowledging Mm -hmm. that and getting rid of it, then... Freeze me sure. in a continuum to be able to face that trial without having to go through all the junk. Sure. Like I've sorted it out. Again, back to that working out our salvation with fear and trembling and recognizing, well, this is in me. I didn't even know that this bitterness or anger or sarcasm was in me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes up to look at it and go, oh, that's what that is. Get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Yep. I can be grateful. Yep.
0: yep. So, yeah. Yeah, so two things. Number 1, none of this is implying that you got to put up a front. In other words, if you're going through something tough and you're having a hard time being thankful for it, meaning a thing that's that's hard for you, this doesn't mean you have to fake it. Yep. The Bible doesn't say to fake it. What the Bible does say is that because we're to be thankful in everything, that means there always is something to be thankful for. So, if you have a hard time being thankful thankful for one thing, find something else you can genuinely be thankful for so that's not fake. Like the breath in your lungs, right, exactly. So don't fake it, right? Find something to be thankful for, start there. Second thing is that 1 Peter chapter 1 does say that when your faith is tested by fire, that it's, it refines you as gold is refined. The point is that when you're going through tough things, it does bring to the surface, whether it's infirmities, weaknesses, insecurities, so on and so forth, that you may not have known were there. That, even in and of itself, is a reason to rejoice because how would you have discovered those things? How would you have known to be corrected if that didn't happen? Right? And so that is something to be thankful for alone. What that also means is that also places you in the opportunity to be able to address those things because they've come to the surface. And that's why correction is so powerful because then you know that that thing is there. You go to the Word of God, you go to prayer, you address it, and you. take that time to help it to be removed from your life. Um, so in that sense, we shouldn't despise those times where our faith is tested because it's part of how we're purified, part of how we're refined. And it also trains you to be really, really good at finding things to be thankful for. Right? Otherwise it can it's more fake to be thankful when things are going or only when things are going well, because then you don't really, really know if you would still be thankful when things aren't going well, you know. So those times of hardship are very important for refining your faith and strengthening you becoming Christ-like. to become becoming like Right? Okay. So yeah, even hardships give you a reason to smile and be thankful. Then we've got being content in all circumstances. That is a sign of a person is truly joyful, as they have that contentment. Benefits of joy and thanksgiving. I mentioned that they feed each other. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 15, write these, we're going to just address four references here. You can write these down. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 15 says, when thanksgiving abounds, it leads to God being glorified. Just like with Paul and Silas in that prison in Acts 16, God was glorified in a huge way because they chose to be thankful and praise God. God was glorified in the the sight of the prison guard, the jailer, and everyone who is in that prison everyone who was in the dungeon, because they made a decision to be thankful. So being thankful is an essential part of how you represent the glory of the kingdom of God and the love and of the power of Christ. You can be thankful around people knowing you represent Christ. That shows the love of God, that it puts the gospel on display in a really powerful way. So don't despise or dismiss or downplay the power that thankfulness has. Philippians 4 verses 4 through 7 Write that reference down. Verses 6 through 7 is a very popular, very common verse that says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then it says, here's the result. The peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you can pray in thankfulness, it gives you peace. And that peace guards your heart and mind. What is your mind being guarded From, or your heart being guarded from? The enemy, yes? But when you're going through something and you neglect to pray about it, you neglect to find things to be thankful for, what generally happens to your mind? Yep, right. Anxiety, worry, grief, distress, right? So he's saying, before you have peace in your mind, it starts with thankfulness, gratitude. Peace guards your mind from anxiety and worry and distress and anguish. So if you want your mind to be guarded from those things, you have to have peace. And the way you get peace is prayer founded on thanksgiving. Thankfulness is a part of how you get peace. Peace is how you guard your mind from anxiety, worry, and distress. Really powerful promise. But it starts with a step you got to take to be thankful. Amen? Okay. Okay. We've got Colossians 2 verse 7 it says, uh, verse, well, starts in verse 6 Says, as you have received the Lord Jesus so walk in him rooted built up established in the faith and it says abounding in it with thanksgiving established in the faith and you will abound in that faith which means to excel and be super abundant in that faith with thanksgiving I mentioned earlier how thankfulness contributes to the growth of your faith. This verse states that absolutely as true, that the more thankful you are, the more you abound and excel in your faith. So thankfulness is a really, really important part of just overall spiritual growth. Yes. The The verse before that. Philippians 4 verses 4 through 7. Yeah. Philippians 4 verses 4 through 7. So we just went over Colossians 2 verses 6 and 7. Thanksgiving is necessary to make you abound and excel in faith. You're not going to see a person full of faith who is not thankful. Amen. (laughs) Then, this is an Old Testament example, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, another popular verse says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Having joy in Christ, simply put, is strength in times of difficulty or adversity. If you have joy in Christ, it is strength to you. Two more points and then we'll finish up this teaching. Let's say hypothetically this this situation would never exist, but let's say hypothetically that in your natural life there was absolutely nothing to be thankful for. Let's just just say even the breath in your lungs though, right? <laughs> but let's say, for instance, that there really, there always is something. Let's say there really was nothing in, in, in natural life. Where at that point is your joy supposed to come from? God himself, yes, but more specific. Sure, good point. Holy Spirit, yeah. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, sure. But ultimately, like there's a lot of people in the world who don't know Jesus but believe that God exists, and they don't really find a lot of joy in that because they believe that God is either distant or detached or indifferent, so on and so forth. So what what specifically about your relationship to God is the source of your joy? Right there, your salvation. Exactly. In 1 Peter 1, it specifically notes that your salvation is, the joy of your salvation is, the source ultimately of our joy. Uh, It's like, I think it's like around verse five or six. We can turn there real quick just to.
1: That scripture, the -hmm. joy of the Lord is my strength. When it's read properly from the original, it says the Lord's joy Mm -hmm. is my strength, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: not the joy of the Lord, the Lord's joy. And the Lord's joy was to be able to send Jesus to die for us so that he Mm -hmm. could have all of us.
0: Sure. Yeah, and his joy is also ours, because we have our joy rooted in the same thing. So either way, it it, it applies to your life the same way. The joy that you have that is the same as the joy that God has ultimately in your salvation, which, as Lisa mentioned, is the gift of Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God that was given for us. So point being with all this, that your joy, your reason to be thankful, and your reason to rejoice, even before the little things in life, is really about Jesus. If you can't find reason to be thankful with the gift of Jesus Christ and that's not in place properly, then you're going to have a really hard time being thankful for anything else. So if you put this in order, joy begins, gratitude begins with Christ. Then it's visible things in life, the the little things that you can make a practice of being thankful for. Those two things together carry into contentment, which results... In what Paul said, being content in all circumstances, which means in all circumstances, you'll have joy. That's what that's about. Last point here. For this, let's look at Hebrews 13 verses 15 through 16. Hebrews 13 verses 15 through 16. I love this verse. Hebrews 13, verses 15 through 16 says, Therefore, by him, this is by Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. The reason why I like this verse so much is because it has a direct correlation with the Old Testament, and it extends from a question that a lot of people have, which is that, man, if in the Old Testament they had to offer all of these animal sacrifices and that was an essential part of their worship, it almost feels like we kind of have it off easy and that there's not really a whole lot that we're offering to God on a daily basis. You know, for the Israelites, it was animal sacrifices constantly. It was their grain offerings. It was their fruits and veggies. Like, in everything that they owned and possessed, there was always something they had to give to God from their substance. There was a constant sacrifice of their resources. Now for a Christian today, it seems a little bit easier because it's like, well, we don't really have to do all that. But the writer here in Hebrews states specifically what our modern day sacrifices and burnt offerings are. And he says, it's the sacrifice of praise and the fruit of your lips, which means what you say to God is a huge part of making a sacrifice. Now, the point about a sacrifice is that it costs you something. In other words, it's not easy. Praise isn't a sacrifice if you only do it when things are going well, because you're not losing anything. You're just expressing joy that you have already in favorable circumstances. But if things are not going well and you praise God, you are sacrificing what you would probably prefer to be griping and complaining at that point, turning it into thanksgiving. And that costs you something. And that's the point. That's why praise is a sacrifice. That's why it's called the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to God, which means one of the best things you can do to worship God. And and I mean, truly worship God in your life, is to make a sacrifice, make a costly offering of praise. Because that's when you're showing that I am willing to give up what my flesh wants, which is to gripe and complain and whine. And instead, give thanks to him and, uh, on the contrary. And that's a huge part of worship. And that's one reason why it's really, really important when it comes to music, for instance, when we do like you know what is commonly called praise and worship in churches, that we do not treat it as just an everyday expression of worship to God for no other reason other than that's just what we do. Because in that case, it's not a sacrifice. It's just words. And in many cases, it's fabricated. It's not authentic because it's not coming from a heart that is wanting to give something that is costly. One example in the Old Testament is when David... Had sinned, and God had him choose what his punishment was going to be. And what he chose was a pestilence or a plague that caused 70,000 people of the Israelites to die. And in order to stop the plague and for the sins to be atoned for, David had to make an offering on an altar. And God said he had to make this offering on this specific field. So David goes to this field that's owned. By a certain individual and this individual says to david hey i'll just i'll give you the field like this is really important for the nation really important for you and for god i'll just give the field to you you don't have to buy it david said i'm not going to take it for free i will purchase this field at full price and the reason why he says is because i will not offer to god that which costs me nothing that's the point when it's easy to give something it's not a sacrifice it's not an offering. And it's not really worship. Something is only really worship when it costs you something. So when you have that moment where, man, this is uncomfortable to do, that's the sacrifice of praise. And that's what worship is. And so I want to finish with this point because a lot of us don't really think about thanksgiving or rejoicing or praising God really all that commonly. And the point, Finishing with this is to make you realize that thanksgiving and praise to God is considered an essential part of how we offer him costly sacrifices and how we worship him in moments where things are tough. So if you can't incorporate this thanksgiving into your life, it's going to be really, really tough to be excelling in your faith and really growing in your relationship with God. So your action step is simply going to be to think about how you can participate in this in your daily life. Start with the joy of your salvation. Find little things to be thankful for. Let's remind each other of things to be thankful for and let's not let this stop with Thanksgiving season. This should be a lifestyle. If we make it a lifestyle, it'll cause us to abound in faith and it will be a huge part of our growth.